Before we begin this podcast, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which it was recorded, the land of the Kulin Nations. I'd like to pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. We recognize and respect their continuing culture and contribution they make, and have made to the creative arts with their rich storytelling tradition. Sovereignty was never ceded, and a treaty was never signed. This always has been, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Hello, and welcome to another episode of From Must Till Dawn. Uh, just at the top here to let you know, this is a bit of a longer episode than usual. We had, uh, Berend and I had a fun time chatting about this film and analysing it, and it just flew by. Um, also letting you know, big spoiler, war- big spoiler warning for the film Coherence. Um, uh, so if you are interested in watching the, the movie, I would highly recommend maybe giving it a watch before listening to the podcast. Uh, also, there are some things that we talk about in the podcast that we don't give the uh, the best context to. So things like the book and the, uh, the roulette wheel and the darkness, uh, we don't maybe fully flesh out as much as it does in the movie. That's not to say you have to watch the film to understand the podcast. Um, uh, but, you know, if you'd like to... Um, maybe, maybe, uh, have a hold before, hold on to listening to this episode. Uh, also letting you know there are some mic issues on my end. Don't know what happened. They aren't pro- too problematic. Uh, you can still understand fully what's going on. But with that, please enjoy this episode of From Must Till Dawn. Hey, hey don't be nervous. This is meant to be pretty, it's meant to be relaxed. I, I, like, I was nervous the first few times doing it. Um, I've got a little, I've got a little sticky note with to my computer which just says don't say um because I was editing the last episode so, um, so much and uh, I've really got to start with especially if you know that you're um, being recorded um, mm. it just really you know makes you so much more aware of your little verbal tics yeah, yeah. it's 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 not good but uh, I think on that note, hello, welcome ramblers, let's get rambling, welcome to uh, this episode of From Must Till Dawn, Must's only movie podcast, and will continue to be Must's only movie podcast, so help me God, I will sue you if you come at me. Um, <laughs> uh, I am Caleb Chia, the host of this movie podcast, and uh, I have a, a very special guest with me this week. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure thing. I'm uh, Baron Favira. I'm, uh, I guess you could say, ex muster now. That's, uh, Ooh, that's a little scary. A little um, scary, isn't it? Yeah, I was... Uh, I was involved with Must for six years. Whoa, wow. Now that I Whoa. think about it, man, I'm a bit of a fossil. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, an honor to to be on the uh, Must's one and only uh, film podcast. Um, oh, amazing. And what have you done uh, in that, that six years, Baron, the, um, some of the stuff that you've done with Must? Oh, uh, well, you? my first uh, my first foray into the world of Must was a Must Bop, actually. Um, for those who don't know, that's the uh, must be grade overdubbing project, uh, where there's a film and uh, the audio stripped away, and the new script is like dubbed live uh, over it. So uh, I guess it's kind of poetic that the the first thing I did with Must was film related, and now um, presumably the last thing I'll be doing with Must is film related. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I've done I've done a bit of acting here and there. Uh, I was part of the O Show in 2018, I believe it was done a few things with the Shakespeare company as well uh I also directed the importance of being earnest uh back in 2018 which was a 
real good fun. And then uh, otherwise, I've been an avid um, watcher of must shows. I guess that counts as being involved. Um, <laughs> it definitely counts. And uh, then a bit of a bit of writing here and there uh, with the from scratch um, um, workshops that were that were held this year or last year now, I guess. So. Um, so yeah, dabbling in a bit of everything, to be honest, a bit of performance, a bit of writing, a bit of directing. And, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Amazing. That's, that's what we love to hear. And that's, that's, that's one of the joys of must being able to experiment and try different things out. Absolutely. And, you Absolutely. know, uh, one of the best things, but this podcast isn't about must, it's no. about movies. No, no. Um, amazing. So as, uh, most people who are listeners will know and to the, uh, the new listeners, uh, each fortnight, I get uh, a guest to come in. We watch two movies. Uh, I watch a movie that the guest chooses, and then the guest watches the main movie of this podcast, mm. the cult classic mm. masterpiece uh, From Dusk Till Dawn by Robert Rodriguez, uh, written by Quentin Tarantino, starring George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino himself, and Harvey Keitel. Um I think this movie is great. I want more of people to uh, more people in our generation to watch it a bit more. That's part of the reason why I made this podcast. Uh, and um, yeah, it's it's a great film. But the guest has to choose one. And Baron, would you like to uh, reveal to everyone the film that you had me watch sure for this thing. week's podcast? I um I got come to watch a film called Coherence by oh, what's his name, the director. It's like James Ward. Burkitt, something like that. Yeah, same I really situation. should have looked this up beforehand. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had it. Uh, I accidentally just closed a tab where I had that open. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I, someone Burkitt. Uh, it's this really, really um, James uh, Ward Burkitt. You got it right uh, first time. There you, there go, you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I believe it's a, it's a 2014 um, sci-fi thriller. Um, it's uh, it's really low budget. Um, it was made in a really interesting way as well, and uh, I just think it's. Um, it's a really great example of how you can make a, um, a complex and engaging uh, character-driven story um, with next to no budget. Um, you know, you, you don't need a big uh, special effects budget or uh, anything like that to make a, an engaging sci-fi film. Yes, I think um, one of the benefits of this film being uh, sci-fi, and actually, because it's much more, it's a conceptual, like it's a cerebral sci-fi yeah. in the same way that like Primer is, uh, whereas Primer is about, you know, time travel and very hardcore, the physics of time travel. This mm. is about uh, like multiverse theory and about alternate uh, universes and uh, Schrodinger's cat comes up a lot. Uh, this film was, it's a mind bender. It definitely messes with you a lot. Um <laughs> And I have many thoughts about it. I I think I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. I'm keen to hear them. <laughs> I wrote I wrote one of the shortest summaries I've written for this podcast, but I think one of my most fun summaries to write. But <laughs> speaking of summaries, we'll move to the sum up. This is a section where we both go off and write little summaries about the films. And I think Baron will start with you. I I, I think yeah. I normally try and let's, get the guests uh, to start. Yeah, let's do it. I got a little carried away with mine. Um, Totally fine. Totally fine. I'd like to hear. Make up for the fact that mine's super short. <laughs> and uh, proofreading is a concept I've heard about, but not necessarily employed. Uh, I don't so... believe in it. I think that's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we are. From dusk till dawn. Meet Seth Gecko, a.k.a. Claude Dooney, a.k.a. definitely not George Clooney, who's a professional thief whose one rule is that he doesn't kill anyone, uh, who wakes up one day to find himself lonely in prison. 
Through powers of sibling telepathy, his brother, Richie Gecko, aka Tenton Quarantino, senses Claudia's loneliness and breaks him out of jail to go find some more friends in the faraway land of Mexico. But first, just in case Claudia and Tenton's charisma and wily charms don't win them friends, they rob a bank so that if things go south, they can just buy some friends at Mexican Walmart. Making their way to the border, <laughs> the friendship making begins. Along the way, they meet John Hammond, creator of Jurassic Park, recently returned from the harrowing destruction of his island amusement park, the trauma of which has caused him to renounce his faith and quit his job as a part-time preacher on the side. Claudia's best friend, his gun, affectionately named Mr. 44, proves to be the ultimate wingman and introduces Claudia and John. After a thrilling crossing of the border, the ragtag team of misfits really bond, and Claude finally decides to embrace his vulnerable side, admitting to the group that he has a cool book, and the whole team are officially in it. Riding the high of friendship, the team go to celebrate and make even more friends in Mexico's world-famous bar, the Titty Twister. George's great uh, sorry, not George, Claude. Um, <laughs> George Clooney is uh, not in this film, it's Claude Clooney. No. Um, <laughs> uh, Claude's great fear of rejection almost comes to fruition as the bartender says the titty twister is only for truckers and bikers. But John Hammond convinces the bartender to let them stay through some very clever Jedi mind tricks, revealing in the biggest twist of the film that John Hammond's true identity is in fact Obi-Wan Kenobi, who actually renounced his faith following the tragic aftermath of Order 66. As the team makes more and more friends, their charms prove to be too powerful. Their new friends love them so much that they invite Claude, Tenton, and Obi-Wan to join their cult. Though they are flattered, Obi-Wan's been there, done that with the cult life, and so, looking out for his new best friend, Claude decides the best way to work through this hurdle is an open discussion with the group. After all, Claude's one rule as a professional thief is that he doesn't kill anyone. So, Claude sits everyone down and they take turns to say how they feel, why they feel that way, and how they can move forward with a meaningful and fruitful relationship, cult-free. As they finally start making headway, in the startling climax of the film, Claude remembers that rules are made to be broken, and so the professional thief, who definitely doesn't kill anyone, slaughters all the patrons. And in a poetic conclusion, Claude Juni rides off into the sunset, ending where he began, friendless and alone. Oh, that's, wow, what a... What a summary of <laughs> the alternate reality in which that is the story of the film. I don't know if that's a better or worse story than the actual <laughs> film, but it's definitely a movie I, I want to see. I just couldn't. I, I, <laughs> the, the guy who played the preacher, I just couldn't get over the fact that it, I, I literally saw the Jurassic Park guy. It's the hat. It's, it's the hat he was it's wearing hat, yeah, with the glasses sure. and the beard that I was like, is, <laughs> is he the man from Jurassic Park? And then, and then the, the the whole thing with uh, I have a truck license just felt like such a weak loophole that it, yeah, it had to RV. be there had to be something something more at play there. Um, yeah, of all of the of all of the things brought up in the Tarantino section of this podcast, which we will get to, you know, the problematic elements in terms of like race and gender, and also like Tarantino's just character and whether Tarantino is yeah. a good actor or not. <laughs> um, the one thing I'm surprised hasn't come up is the fact that is uh, is an RV a truck? Does it count? Would in a in if this was a real life situation in which you tried to get into a trucking and biking bar with an RV, would that count? And um. I don't know if it would. I don't know if I count it up. It's. I think Garvey's just a big car. Yeah. Well. Well. You know. I, I feel like this film is very, very well researched, right? And so I think uh, mm. Quentin uh, Quentin Tarantino would have, you know, interviewed um, 
biker and trucker bar owners and, and asked, you know, is this something realistically that would happen? So, um, yeah, so the I dramaturgy holds the up. The dramaturgy does <laughs> hold up. Uh, and I think that's really clear throughout the entire film. Um, mm, very clear, very clear. Mm. Oh, amazing. I love it. I love this alternate reality <laughs> from dusk till dawn. And speaking of alternate realities, we might move on to my little summary of coherence. Uh, this one's a little bit shorter than I normally do, but I, I had a lot of fun writing it. So, <clears throat> coherence is not a movie. It's a thought experiment in the realm of in the realm of quantum film physics called Schrodinger's low budget movie. <laughs> the thought experiment goes like this: Imagine you're a director and you have the idea for a cerebral sci-fi horror film, eight middle-aged actors who are all friends, a nice house in LA, and about fifty thousand dollars lying around. Now assume you also make this movie in five days without a script, so you make your actors improvise their way through scenes in which they have to pretend that some cosmic force has created a rift in reality, causing all possible universes to exist at once. Also assume that you don't have access to a tripod, so the whole movie has to be shot handheld. Now, without watching the final cut, the question is, is the film good or bad? That's what today's podcast is here to determine. <laughs> Some may say that all these elements would lead to a sloppy, unfocused, pretentious mess that has nothing more to say beyond aren't alternate alternative realities cool? Others may argue that these constraints create an intimate paranoia-inducing thrill ride that makes you question the nature of choice. But without watching the final cut, both these realities simultaneously exist and don't exist. And it isn't until we sit down and watch the damn thing that one of the two realities becomes real and the other branches off into some alternative reality that we aren't in. However, I'm not a quantum physicist, and this is not a science podcast. I come to you, I come to you now with a different theory altogether, for I believe Schrodinger's theory doesn't account for the most interesting reality, the reality that we are in right now, the reality in which the 2013 film Coherence is both. And that's my little summary of touche, very touche, <laughs> very meta, and uh, I think very appropriate. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And yeah. I think um, <laughs> after that, we definitely need to move on to same shit, different yeah. shit. Yeah. Uh, where we discuss the strengths and weaknesses of both films. Um, because I believe this podcast has the potential to go on a little bit longer than usual, just with how dense coherence is with explanation. Uh, we might, but we'll, we'll start with from dust till dawn. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Baron, what are your thoughts on the film? Did you like it? What didn't you like? Oof. Yeah. How'd you feel? Look, it was, I, I can say this with the utmost confidence. It was the weirdest film I've ever seen. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I, I, I enjoyed myself. Uh, and, and I was, I know that you said to, to go into this film as, as blind as you can. And because I listened to a few episodes before watching the film, um, I thought, ah, oh, you know, some of the, some of the real great moments are probably a bit ruined for me. Um, but there were, there were so many that, that, that <laughs> I was still caught by surprise I, and even stuff that I, that, that had been mentioned on the podcast that I knew was coming. I just, yeah, I, I was, I was still surprised and, um, and what a ride. Uh, I thought there was, there was some genuinely f funny comedy in, in it as well. Um, I think, um, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, is it, it's intended as a comedy film, right? Like it, it, it takes itself so seriously that I just cannot believe that it's not meant to be a comedy. Yeah. I think it's very much in the, um, the Robert Rodriguez style of 
uh, films that border between uh, absurd and serious, where it's a lot of the humor and almost a, a lot of the charm of a lot of his other movies, um, a la Desperado, uh, El Mariachi, Spy Kids. They're <laughs> films that exist in this heightened reality where the characters take this heightened reality so seriously it's almost it's kind of it's kind of meta in a it's like almost i i would view i i would argue in some sense it's a little bit meta in the sense of just how seriously this whole thing is taken um it's like meta without a wink it's like a meta without having a wink to the audience yeah, it's yeah. just it's like, like a, a just hard eye contact to the audience you know hard, yeah it's just like get it <laughs> <Yeah>. it's vampires <laughs> it's a vampire movie now and you have to love this yeah. and I, I do. I personally do. Uh, um, yeah. It, yeah. I, I'm inclined to agree uh, with uh, some, uh, with what other guests have said that it does feel like two different films um, at, mm. at times. Um, yeah. This sort of like getaway heist film into a sort of uh, like slasher horror vampire thing. Um, it, it, even in terms of like the design, uh, I, I, it felt like two different films, you know, you, you've got this real like, western uh you know in the desert driving through uh you know the texas ranges uh yeah this was sort of western vibe and then and then suddenly you're in this very um overly designed tacky uh like <laughs> bar that is so so obviously on the nose <laughs> and yeah. like oh look at this gothic architecture Ooh, <laughs> could there be something more at play here <laughs> um, and and i still i'm undecided for, for all the things that i you know question about the film's decisions i i, I can't decide whether that's exactly what what makes it so good or mm. what <laughs> what i don't like about it um i i I really don't know. Um, <laughs> what you were saying, though, about the, the characters taking it so seriously, another real strength I found from the film was George Clooney's um, commitment to the performance was just... Oh, so if, good. If, I think that is the, the real cornerstone of the film and um, what what makes me what prevented me from abandoning it <laughs> um <laughs> besides being obligated to watch it for the uh the podcast, the podcast. <laughs> um, it's just that with he takes it so and you never hesitate for a moment that that george clooney is committed to this performance you, like you never doubt the reality of his character and 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 how his character feels um because the rest of the actors I'm sure they've never even heard of the word commitment. Um, <laughs> Whoa, big, big cut to Harvey Keitel and stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the Quentin Tarantino played himself. Um, the, 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 the little kid just spoke dialogue and didn't really, I, I do not know how that kid got that role. Yeah. The, the child actors in this, um, like uh, the, the character that plays like Kate and um, everything. And Quentin Tarantino, I think, just in general in this film, it's the eternal question of is he a good actor or is he not? Because George Clooney commits to the role. I argue, I, I would personally argue they think Harvey Keitel um, in, at mo has his moments of 
breaking a little bit, but I, I think that he does a pretty good performance considering his character. Juliet Lewis has nothing to do as the daughter. <laughs> yeah. Um the other the other the other son, uh yeah, Ernest uh, Ernst uh, Ernest, Ernst Lou, I think. Uh, yeah, Ernest Lou. Um has nothing to do and then like yeah there's so many characters that have so little to do um in the film that i can't i can't even say whether they're being bad their acting is bad or not because they just have so little to work with that i feel a bit mean being like ah you suck but i also am like you have like three lines that have (laughs) and all of them are could have been cut yeah yeah no that that's pretty valid that's pretty valid um the only time I was convinced by the, the the kid's performance was when he he died in the end. Um, oh, that's a beautiful scene. Yeah, that seemed like that seemed like genuine terror on his part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a. Um, do you think? Do, do you think Quentin Tarantino is a good actor in this? He won a Razzie for this performance. Oh, uh, really? Uh, the, look, yeah, the I year think. It came out. I've never seen Quentin Tarantino perform in the past. And if I have to make a very guilty confession here is I've not actually seen a Quentin Tarantino film before. <gasps> I know. Pretty scandalous. Thank God I'm not a film studies student. Yeah. Cause I <laughs> yeah. would have to rip in, rip into. Yeah. I think, I think we'd have to end the podcast early and, uh, and <laughs> just, and just, uh, Find leave it unreleased. Short notice. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I've seen enough. I mean, he's he's enough of a cultural figure that you know who he is, and and that he's you know quirky, and he has this very particular sort of uh, aesthetic and um, aesthetic not just to his films, but who he is as, as a person. Um, I and look, I I wasn't convinced that it wasn't just Quentin Tarantino. Uh, like it, instead of playing the character, he was just sort of playing himself. Um, but even if he was playing himself within the story, I thought it fit. I, I thought it fit the tone and, um, you know, the relationship between the two brothers, um, they were so different. Uh, but that's what brought a lot of the, the, the comedy, um, the, the real quirkiness of his performance was a strength, even though I wasn't convinced it was much of a performance. If, if you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. For sure. It's, um, it's definitely one of those, it's definitely adds to the almost, uh, low budget, uh, f- like feeling of the whole movie. Cause it definitely feels like a low budget film, which as far as I'm aware, it didn't have the lowest budget in the world. Like it had, yeah, $19 million. It was a $19 million budget, which I guess it's hard for us as theater makers when we're used to working with like 200 bucks to make yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that a $19 million movie in Hollywood is somewhat considered like a low budget film to a certain extent, nowhere near as low budget as uh, the next film coherence about to talk about, which was 50 grand, which they call a beer budget. I wish I had 50 grand. For beer. <laughs> if I had 50 grand's worth of beer, uh, 50 grand worth of beer, I would throw the biggest rager ever and no one would pay for drinks. It'd be no BYO. It's like, I've got it. Help me. I need to get rid of all this beer. You wouldn't waste <laughs> the 50 grand on making some weird wanky ce- cerebral, uh, uh, sci-fi film no absolutely not i buy a shit ton of beer yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but yeah it's it's it definitely adds to the that low budget um b movie uh element which quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez are known to love that exploitation era of cinema they make a lot of homages to it um 
I think Rod- I think Quentin Tarantino um, does it better than Rodriguez to a certain extent. I think he uh, he's a bit more nuanced with the, the the stuff that he chooses to homage. I think Rodriguez to a certain extent just homages things that he likes and thinks are cool without really maybe thinking how it benefits the film for the most part. And I think this film though it it that that lack of uh focus on like finding the best homages in the way to make a succinct and clear homage to something that also adds to the story or the themes or the elements of the film works in regard to this movie a little bit because it's such a especially with just the twist that happens like it's such a insane twist to happen that comes out of left field with no are you talking about are you talking about the twist uh with uh, the preacher being obi-wan kenobi Oh yeah, that yeah. twist. Yeah, yeah that yeah, yeah. twist. Yeah. That the biggest twist of the film yeah, was yeah, the yeah. Obi Wan. The, the it would being in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, of course it's the the, the vampire. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it 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 is. It's a film that I think I think it benefits from that a little bit. Uh, maybe not as much. If you do, like, some people love the B grade movie schlock type stuff of people who are like, I had a cool idea, I made a movie about it and that some people don't some people do i respect you if you don't i love it i love i'm about 50 50 sometimes sometimes i can really really love it and other times um it just doesn't quite hit the mark i think it depends on what the idea is and whether whether i think it's also cool you know i don't necessarily uh you know i won't like something just because they've taken a idea and and made it into a film yeah no, of course, of course. Um, which is interesting because that's what I think coherence is a lot. And we may as well get onto coherence a bit. I think we've, Dust Till Dawn, it's a great film. And we, I, I could talk about it for ages, but it would mostly come back to like, how cool is this? Oh yeah, what did you get? I, I did just want to, while, while we were talking about low budget, well, a low $19 million budget, I was actually somewhat, and I think this is going to surprise you. I was somewhat impressed by some of the effects, some of the practical effects. Mm. Um, yeah. For every really, really terrible special effect, there was a really cool one. Um, yeah. There was some, you know, the the impaling, the impaling of the people on on the chair legs. That was pretty cool. Some of the some of the vampires um, being set on fire. Some some of the like um, the vampire designs were all over the place. Not inconsistent. Not consistent at all. But some of them were quite cool. And because they were practical, it was much more believable than if they were just CGI. Yeah, no, of course. I think the practical effects were really interesting and fun in this film because they were they were definitely uh, I- exaggerated in the way that you would expect a kind of like uh, B-movie in this style to be. But they also weren't so exaggerated where you didn't believe, it didn't like take you fully out of the world of the story. And I think that's um, another director who does that really well is like Sam Raimi in the like Evil Dead trilogy and stuff where you have this exaggerated gore and violence, but it's done in all, but it's all not so over the top that you're like, oh, this is just not even believable anymore. And you actually, it's that it, you get that humor out of it. And it is funny. It, it's what I will give this film is it makes the, the, the tense gore fest that is the bar scene in the f- second half of the film is quite funny. Like, yeah. A oh, lot of the hilarious. humor comes from just how crazy everything is. Yeah. And also just how quickly the tonal shift is. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's <laughs> insane. And, and 
the amount of gratuitous uh, gore and crazy ways in which they dispose of the vampires is so much fun. Um, you know, I would have loved to have been in the drawing room when they were coming up with just all the wild ways that you can yeah. kill a vampire, <laughs> that you can stake a vampire. And then at the end when they, you know, they uh, make those homemade weapons. Like George Clooney is um, like jackhammer steak. Was yeah, so cool. Oh, so cool. <laughs> Iconic movie Iconic. weapon. If I, if I could get the prop of that, I would be so happy. Yeah. It'd make good content for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, excellent. Well, um, speaking of good content, let's talk about coherence. Uh, I think I might save my problems with the film for the next section, the Tarantino. Yeah, I'm going to save I, my, I've got a few extra problems that I'll save yeah. for Tarantino as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, so yeah, I'll talk about some of the strengths I think with this movie uh, first. I think coherence was, uh, as I said, it's a film that I think is simultaneously both very good and kind of poor. And I think that in a weird way, the, the, its strengths are also its weaknesses. Um, and in terms of to get the most enjoyment out of this film, I feel you need to view it as you need to read it from a more theoretical scientific lens. I think, I think the idea of alternative reality, alternate realities is really cool. So I should give it, I realize I actually didn't give an idea to the listener what the f- actually happens in the movie <laughs> in my summary. So to give a quick brief an actual summary, um, the film is about eight people who are eight friends who have a dinner party. And on the night of the dinner party, a comet is going overhead across the earth. Uh, as this happens, a lot of weird stuff happens there. The lights sort of, uh, there's have blackouts, which then like fix themselves. And there's a lot of blackouts, their phones crack at times and their whole street is powered out. And it's really dark outside, except for one house down the street wh- whose lights are still on. Uh, when they go to that house, they realize that there are doppelgangers of themselves in this other house. Um, and as the film, they, they don't know what to do essentially with this. And as the film progresses, you slowly find out that there aren't actually, it's not just doppelgangers. Um, there is the, when they go into the dark outside, they're essentially moving between alternate realities where all of where each of their choices, such as with like Schrodinger's cat and also the multiverse theory, the idea of every time you, come up to a choice in life every choice that you make creates a whole different reality where you make either choice uh every choice that they make is currently happening all at once so when you go into the darkness like a roulette wheel as it explains it spits you out when you get to the other house at a random alternative reality and they start freaking out and not knowing how to deal with this this idea of like what it of these different alternative realities and i think from a if you're reading this from an idea of this film wants to explore a scientific theory, which I think is a totally valid reason to create a film. It it's really fun and really works and it's really tense. Like there is some really tense moments um, in it. I think one of the best and scariest moments of the film is when the the main uh, protagonist, Emily goes to her car she picks a ring up and then she comes out and her boyfriend's there and they give each other a hug and just through like some quick conversation they both realize that they're not from the same universe and there's just they're in the dark with their torches on and they slowly back away from each other and that scene is brilliant like i think that scene was my favorite moment in the film from just 
in terms of like cinematography and yeah. like what it does for the movie and yeah. how it amps up this horror element. And there's so it. many uncanny moments like that. Um, mm. You know, uh, what, for me, you know, the first the first moment when I first watched it that I felt genuine fear was uh, when they're crossing the street and they just see those red glow sticks yes. on the other yeah. side. Because at that point, you don't know yet. Uh, I, I think that you don't know yet that they're doppelgangers um but then yeah oh just so many great uncanny moments like that um, yeah there's to give to give the audience an idea it's um the way they differentiate themselves during the beginning so a lot of it because it's low budget they have to have very easy ways of differentiating between different characters so when the lights go out they have three different boxes of glow sticks green red and blue the characters you follow from the beginning open the blue box but then as the thing goes on you start to see different elements and you realize that that's not the only difference between the characters one character mike were in the one that we start with the beginning was a previous alcoholic and then you start to realize that some of the other versions are still you know functioning alcoholics yeah. or less than functioning alcoholics yeah, and he blackmails himself yeah um, he blackmails himself oh, um good stuff <laughs> yeah it's very there are some real yeah there's some really cool ideas also my favorite line in the movie which is also which relates to the black male. And I think one of the best lines in cinema of all time is um, Mike blackmails himself by sending, putting a letter under the door of the opposite of the other house that basically reveals that he knows that him and uh, one of the, uh, one of the women who is married to one of his friends here, her and him slept together 12 years ago. And that's the, the blackmail is that he's going to reveal it if they don't, um, get the book there's so much to talk about in terms of like so much the audience is going to be missing out and just watch the film yeah just watch the film um, before listening just to watch the rest the of the podcast just watch the film just watch the film and there's this great moment where uh i think noah who's the who's the is the friend gets really angry at him and mike says to noah he's like you know what this proves you know what this note proves that in every other reality i fuck your wife that and so that good. is such a just charged insult and it's i like i don't i hope i don't know if that was scripted or improv because i know that a lot of the film it was shot over five days the the filming process was really interesting the director didn't have a script uh, he'd been working for a year building the the timeline and the houses of how, where all the different characters are. And each day the actors would get a bit of paper with who their characters were in what timeline and what their, what the differences between each character was. And then they'd improvise um, with that in mind. And I hope that line was improvised because if that's improvised, that's one of the finest bits of improvisation I think I've ever seen. That line is so good. I laughed out loud. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. hard at that. Because it's, it's just also not what you're expecting. You know, you, you think he's going to try and de-escalate the, the situation, but he is not. He's out. He, he's going <laughs> full escalation mode. Full escalation mode, which is the thing, like, you don't know if that's the drunk mic or mm. the not drunk mic or which mic it is. Yeah. and. That's the that's the thing is you start to realize throughout the film that all of the characters are from different realities and they slowly get more and more mixed up and it's because they keep leaving the house and going into the dark and getting spun out. Um, I think, yeah, so in reading it from a scientific thought, uh, thought experiment point of view, like the Schrodinger's cat, the idea that you have the cat in the box, vial of poison, is it dead or not dead? Well, both realities exist and when you open the box, that's when the realities fold in on themselves and you either have a dead cat or a live cat. Um, that's really cool. I think the film falls apart a little bit when you think about it more from a philosophical lens or also just like what 
uh, from an artistic point of view of what they're trying to say, which I think I'd like to maybe focus on a little bit more in this podcast, mostly because there's so much discussion about the science behind it and like trying to work out which characters from what universe and who's where. Um, that, you know, you can go on YouTube, there's a 20 minute video explaining the whole thing. You can like, it's very easy. And I think it does something in, it does, it raises some interesting questions, but I also think that I also am not sure why, but, um, the film is very existentialist as I'm sure most people would gather from the elements and themes in it. Um, and it really, it really got me thinking about choice. And it really got me thinking about this idea of choice and also um, the idea of Nietzsche's eternal return. Do you know the theory about eternal return? No, I don't. So Nietzsche posed this question. It's about sort of the idea about reality and choice, which, uh, and like how to live life essentially. And I might mess this up because I'm not, I'm not personally the biggest fan of Nietzsche. So I'm not a hundred percent if I have this right, but the thought experiment is this. Um, you're by yourself, you're alone one day uh, and a demon approaches you and tells you that uh, you are going to be stuck with this curse in which um, you are going to repeat the same, the life that you're living. Once you die, you will repeat the same life continuously till the end of time. Um, And essentially what the thought experiment is meant to do is it makes this idea of like, if you are going to repeat and relive the same life for the rest of eternity it means that every choice that you make from here on out matters because it's you would want to create the best version of your life to live in those future uh, iterations and that's a really cool thought experiment Mm. and it's a challenge it's a harsh thing it's it's very existential and i think part of it is existing is it's meant to be a challenging thought because it's like how do we live our best life how do we make every like how do we make the choices that we make matter and what if a choice that we make that seems arbitrary at one point turns out to actually be a really important choice later yeah, how do we terrifying. be able to determine that it's pretty terrifying. it's a terrifying thought it's a scary thought but there is this element to that where like that's kind of what the it's a bit of a conundrum as to that sort of what m's going through in yeah. a sense she has this one night where she knows that all of her all of her life um all of her different she has access to a multitude of different realities and different lives that she lived with different choices mm. um and at the end big spoiler alert she decides to leave the mess that is the house that she's currently been in from the beginning of the film and walk out into the darkness and find the reality that she likes the, the reality that she wants to be in the best reality the you know uh to make a community reference the the darkest timeline she's in the darkest timeline <laughs> and she good. wants to find the not Very good. the not darkest timeline and like that is <laughs> that it's really cool and she finds she finds the reality that she thinks she want to be in and interesting thing about what that reality is is that's the reality where she makes her character in essence makes the toughest choice and all of the characters make the toughest choice which is to stay indoors and do nothing like that is the best outcome for the evening you find out is the outcome where they don't, they just get drunk. They be friends, they hang out, they chat, they talk. They don't care about this thing. They don't even, I don't, I think it's also like, they don't even know uh, that the, this, any of the this re- alternate reality stuff is going are happening. On. Yeah. And that's the best alternate reality. And there's an M in that reality, which she kills yeah. uh, or twice. Do, or does she? Doesn't she? Yeah. Or does she? Which 
is that ending. I, I do want to talk about the ending, but we'll get to that. I, I, I have a feeling how it ends. It's going to be a Tarantino. I knew it. I knew it. Um, and yeah, I, I think that from that point of view, it was really, to view it from that philosophical point of view, it's quite interesting to think about it from that lens. However, I, I, I as someone who at this moment I am currently um you know we're not going to get too deep into it because that's not what this podcast is about but you know mental health not super great at the moment and I've been you know reviewing a lot of the choices I've made recently and a lot of the things that I've done and a lot of these choices that I made and I'd love the chance to go back or see the reality in which I made a different a different outcome happened or I made a different choice and you know I think that for a film that's so much about choice and about that and me going through this period, I I wish it had hit a little harder because I felt like it didn't. Yeah. And I, this might be common to Tarantino, but I think this is more of maybe a weakness, but less of a rant. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it, I, I think that I was in a state, I'm in a state watching it. I'm in a state now where it's, I love thinking about this film. I love the thoughts about it, but I have no, for someone who for all intents and purposes should be most, the most emotionally affected by this movie with now, you know, where I'm like, God, I wish I could go to the alternate universe. God, I, what I'd do to go and find the alternate universe that I want to be in and fucking kill that Callum yeah. and take his place. <laughs> like as much as I'd love to do that. Cause you know, I, I, I was got to the end of it and I was like, huh, okay, why don't I feel anything towards this story? And I think it's because it focuses so heavily on um, on the idea and the premise. Uh, and because it's so heavily improvised, we don't get a chance to actually emotionally connect with the characters as much as I'd like to, mm. which then means that I, there's not as much of an emotional driver throughout oh, the See, film. that's interesting because I... I felt, in fact, maybe a bit more connected to the characters precisely f- because of the the improvisational nature of it all. Um, it felt a lot more genuine, uh, and the it at points maybe it felt a little too real. Um, and and I guess that's the difficulty. I can see where you come from, though, in terms of because it was improvised, they didn't necessarily, um, you know, from a writing perspective, have that room to you know, um, have like one key monologue or, or like a key line that sort of like really makes the themes hit home. Um, they were at the mercy of the the footage they got and uh, in the editing, they, they had to really bring that out, which I think they did do a brilliant job. Oh, uh, they of, did of it. editing it. Props to the editor. Yeah. Like mad shout out to the editor. Five days of just straight one take filming, yeah. handheld stuff and make and putting it into like a mind bending, but still co- like coherent, concise <laughs> film. Like, honestly, that yeah. editor, I hope they got their money. I hope yeah, that yeah. 50 grand went just, <laughs> to, the just to the editor. Because... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I find it interesting that, um, yeah, yeah. The, the fact that, that for you, the film was about choice and I had never, well, and I, you know, I'd considered, yeah, it's about choice, but for me, it's been so what spoke to me about the film was its expression of identity. Um, and I guess that is probably very interrelated with choice. Um, um, because, um, for me, what it, what it came down to all these alternate realities was how do you know, you, you know, how do you know a, 
like, yeah, what choices you're going to make, what are the best choices, but then how do you know that you are, how do you know that you are you? <laughs> you, you yeah, you know, like, like, I, like yeah. which one, which one is is you? And 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 the question that Mike poses, which it's a bit on the nose, but I think it's uh, for me, it felt like the the central question of the film, which was how do we know that we're not the darkest versions of ourselves? Um, so so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Callum, on if you were instead to uh, view this film not as a solely a um, a meditation on choice, but on, on sort of the fundamentals of identity, would that change your perspective on its strengths as a philosophical film, as opposed to a science fiction film? I think yes and no. I, I definitely uh, recognize the, uh, the interpretation uh, about like self-reflection. Yeah. I think it's a, the film's a lot about self-reflection, which I think is also inherently choice. Yes, I, yeah. I, I guess, I guess in a way for me, um, I like definitely agree. And like those elements about identity, uh, which is very interesting because the last episode was about persona, which is also another film about identity. So it's interesting. We have these two different films that take the idea of identity and pose it in such different ways. Yeah. yeah it's, I, I definitely agree. I, I think that why I think part of the reason why I think this is a good and a bad film is because you can take many different readings and depending on the reading, for me, at least personally, depends on how good I think this film is. I think from a from just a cerebral sci-fi talking about like alternate realities, I love the film. I think it's such a clever lounge room horror way of talking about like, fuck man, what if what if the what if the comet came and what would you do? And it's yeah. that's a scary situation yeah. to be in. It's what so, if I am the darkest version of myself? What if Callum? I am the darkest version of myself? <laughs> and we don't know. We'll never we'll know. Ne- or, or will we? Hmm. Oh, will we? Hmm. Maybe tonight. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that I love it from that perspective. Um, and when it comes to, I guess, underneath that, the idea of identity and self-reflection, I, I, I identify and connect with it a lot more about that um, in the sense that, you know, what if there are all these alternate realities in which every choice that I've ever had, that you've ever had to make splits off into a multitude of different universes? What is the universe in which we are the most ourselves like what is the true you and that's a really interesting thing to think about and i think i appreciate it for doing that it doesn't really i don't think it hammers that point home in as much but it definitely is something it's a question that it poses a lot and then i think my least the interpretation that i have the most trouble with is the one where that sort of builds off that which is about this idea of choice and this idea that we we make the choices that we make inevitably just determine who we are and the idea of we can't go back and change those choices. And this film is a film about a person who gets essentially the, gets the chance to make that choice Uh, rather, but rather than a time travel film, it's about you get to choose you. She gets to in the span of 12 hours while the comet's still passing, gets the choice to find the reality that she is in that she wants to be in where the ver- well sorry rather the version of herself is the version that she wants to be and the problem and then she has to make that difficult moral decision of she has to kill that version of herself and like do you make that decision is that the decision that you make like what and i think that's an interesting question but i also just think as i said the fact that i'm going through a similar existential moment at th- this point in time i thought uh if the film had maybe 
if the film had been written even more slightly or there was a better idea or even it had a bit of a higher like more of a budget or it was a bit more scripted um or uh they had the, the filming process of the character who plays Amir he was the only actor who uh was also one of the co-writers uh and because of that it meant that his role in the film was also to lead the actors during the improv to get back to story beats if they started trailing off and started going off different areas and tangenting off he would bring them back to the story beats and i think maybe if they had another one of the actors who either maybe wasn't the co-writer but also was heavily involved in the writing process and they had more people acting to bring it back to that story maybe we would have gotten i would have gotten a little bit more of that and it would have been a little bit more interesting in that sense but other like it's still an interesting film yeah. like i still really enjoyed the film and yeah. i i, I want to watch it again oh, and, and you like, absolutely should i it. have watched mm. it five times and each time you wow. each time you watch it you notice a new detail of um you know who is from which house um there are so many little easter eggs for you to look for and and um uh, the director intentionally constructed the story in that way he said each time he wants the viewer to notice something different um, but I'd be interested to know, um, Callum, in terms of making this theme of choice hit, uh, you know, really hit harder or, or to really round it off better, what, what did you think the film needed to do differently? Specifically, like, what were you looking for in the exploration of choice as an idea uh, and being able to, you know, change choices or, you know, make the best choice you can um, or yeah along those lines what would you have wanted to see to really bring that home or or do you know i mean it's not your job you didn't make the yeah. film but i'd be interested to know what, <laughs> yeah. what was that missing ingredient for you i i think i think the it's maybe not necessarily what i don't know exactly what i do but i think that the final the ending of the movie where she goes she makes that choice to leave the house and find the reality she wants to be in that was the moment where i was like right this is this is your thesis on choice this is your this is your what you're saying when you're talking about the idea of choice yeah. and this existential nietzschean eternal return yeah. type thing um and i think there needed to be more of that i think that because it was improvised it meant that a lot of the the character drama whilst there were there were there were there was drama between the characters with friends who have slept with each other and like uh, uh, uh her Emily's boyfriend also dated one of the people that's coming to the party who then hits who an alternate reality version of Laurie hits on him as well. Um, I wanted there to be more, I think I wanted there to be more choices like that. Maybe not as intense and big as the ending, but I think maybe if it had been a little bit more scripted, um, they would have been able to flesh out the choices the characters have to make leading up to that big choice so the idea of like the drinking or the 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 blackmailing and that 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 those decisions because it was improv it came across as these people were sort of doing things um that came to their head which worked really well in terms of making it you know cinema verite very like real life type of like kind of felt almost found footage because of the handheld but what it then meant it lacked was you 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 made that choice uh, which is a totally fine choice to make, but the 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 compromise that the director had to make by making that choice was that the idea of choice is no longer as rele- as prevalent of a theme that yeah. I think would have been uh, more hammered home by you know her character. She has a choice to move 
you know, uh, she's a dancer and her lack of choice. I think that's the other scene that I think really did it well was her talking about creating this dance show where they gave her role to a better dancer mm. and offered her the, um, they offered the Emily the understudy. And, and she then didn't she, take it. <laughs> she, she took too long to decide yeah. whether she wanted to take it or not. Yeah. So they gave that understudy role to someone else who then when the late, the lead dancer pulled out, the understudy got to still be the role. So she could have, that could have been her career. Yeah. Wow. Now that, now that you mentioned it, yeah, I can definitely see how much more choice is a part of it. Yeah. I've been so focused on the identity side of it that, yeah, yeah. The, the, it really is concerned a lot with choice. Yeah, because it's a concerned it's it's concerned a lot. The identity is a big part with the self reflection, but I think that yeah, it's it's there is an element of choice that I think doesn't necessarily need to it doesn't need to be there for the film to be good. I think it's a very good film, um, but I just wish it was there more. And I think yeah. we should probably move on to yeah, Tarantino because yeah. we're talking. We could talk for ages about <laughs> yeah. this movie. Um, so yes, Tarantino, that is a section where we get a rant about our problems with each of the movies that can be problematic elements, or it can be like the story, the directing, stylistic, any, anything one around about. So Berend from Dust Till Dawn, problematic elements, rant away. Um, okay. So I'll the most obvious one I'll get out of the way. Um, just nice and quickly, the unnecessary sexual predator character. Why does why does Quentin Tarantino need to be a sexual predator? It adds nothing to the film except to make the audience uncomfortable. Um, I think it sits especially poorly for me because this is very clearly a film where it's like, oh, what if it's this idea, that idea, etc. Why don't we just, what would this look like in a movie? All these things together. And I just don't think, like... A character who's a sexual predator is uh, like just for the sake of being a sexual predator that's not interesting uh it's you know we didn't learn anything about why he's a sexual predator uh about what that says about you know masculinity or um uh yeah just literally nothing interesting came out of it except to make the audience uncomfortable um uh you know i i think when it comes to films like this, you don't necessarily need to inform every decision with a specific purpose because that's the style of film this is. You know, you don't need to necessarily have, you know, strong artistic grounds for every choice you're going to make. But for something like uh, like Quentin Tarantino's character, I think I think you should, regardless of what, what, your, what your intent with the film is. Um, just because, yeah, I just thought it was in a bit bad taste. Um, Second thing to rant on is is the tone. I know it's sort of the point of the film and the genre, but I swear Quentin Tarantino does not know. Well, at least with this, didn't know what the <laughs> word tone meant. Because uh, <laughs> boy, oh boy, does it fly around. I swear every two minutes there's a tonal shift, <laughs> which is sort of, it, I, I enjoyed it, but by the end it got it got a bit old. I was just like, please choose what this film wants to be. Um, uh, you know, cause even though, cause it was a comedy, but it took itself so seriously and that made it more funny until it didn't make it more funny anymore. Um, so, you know, by the end of it, I was just waiting for it to wrap up a little. Cause I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the tone, yeah, I'd say those were my two biggest rants. Um, oddly enough, the tone is sort of what lends it its charm, but I think, I think I would have enjoyed it more without the, if there were a few, a few fewer tonal shifts i'd have been a bit more happy or if if it if it was more if it 
um, committed to one particular tone for a bit longer at a time, um, I'd have been a bit more engaged. But uh, yeah, it grew a little tiresome. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I definitely see that. Um, I guess in a way, like that, you there could be a reading where you could read that maybe the tone, the constant tonal shifts are the only thing the film does in a way of foreshadowing the big vampire shift like the the big random shift and you i think that you could potentially argue there's a case for that whether or not the director's intended for yeah. that, that that was the intention yeah. is a completely other thing yeah, but yeah. in a way you could say it like that but i i also don't i don't i'm not giving that fil- the film that much credit i definitely can see how that the the shifting tones uh can be a little like are a little bit over the top and just needless at points and the film would benefit in a way similarly yeah similarly with um coherence and this film i think both films sort of would benefit from sticking in moments longer mm. or sticking mm. with with tone in, in in the uh in terms of from dust or dawn tone and in terms of coherence character by sticking in moments uh, uh a little bit longer just to flesh out ideas yeah, a little bit yeah. more and flesh out some of the story or the characters or just something a little bit more to keep us a little bit invested. Cause I, I do think that if this in the, in the alternate universe where this is just a straight, um, a straight crossing the border thriller, like the straight crossing the border hostage thriller, there's no vampire twist or in the universe where this is just a straight vampire movie, I think they would get really it's about the point of the thriller film when it turns into the vampire movie that you get kind of sick and tired of dealing with it because yeah. it's you're sitting in it for so long and it's not necessarily the most interesting like it's it's cool it's an interesting way but then the twist definitely brings you back your interest back into the film cuz like what the fuck is happening um but I think yeah if it was just like a straight Quentin Tarantino style thriller like just this really intense weird thing it would get really long-winded and boring and the same with the vampire movie you just said okay we get it they they kill vampires they're sticking them on stakes they're in a bar how much longer of this can we have so yeah it is very much two different films but two in a weird way this is uh the universe where two very mediocre to bad films become something probably greater than the sum of their parts purely just because they combine them at the points in which they do where it just changes just boom it's funny you say that that um you know the thriller genre gets tired at that point um because i i'm definitely inclined to agree with you but one of my housemates was sort of casually watching um the first half of the film with me and as soon as the vampire twist happens i just i i'll never forget it He, he said just in in such a um you know low key way he was like ooh this is getting a bit weird <laughs> <laughs> and then he left <laughs> and 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 so I just, uh, I was like, have you not been watching the rest? I, I'm pretty sure it's been weird from the start, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, just, um, I just thought that summed it up pretty well. And I think, yeah, that is the point where you either turn it off or you keep watching because you, you got to know where, how, it, how it ends. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And luckily we haven't had a guest on who turned it off just yet. Um, 
I mean, I, I've, we've had guests who I've definitely spoken to that would have loved to turn it off. And I think the only reason they went through was the obligation <laughs> yeah, to the yeah. podcast. I, I probably would have maybe finished 15 minutes early if I could, but, but I'm, I'm glad I ended up sticking it through. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Those are, yeah, those rants. Um, the tone is, is one of the, the toughest things I think about one of the toughest things about this film in terms of just like story or like from a stylistic production point of view, I guess, or the writing, probably more of it. Um, the tone is very difficult. Uh, coherence. Right. Rant out me, baby. I, as I said, all of the things that are its strengths are also its weaknesses. I think that I, and I probably talked because of that last conversation got a little bit long. So I probably touched on a lot of the points I, I, I was going to touch on in this. I think that the improv lends itself, makes it really good in terms of adding this element of tension to the film. Cause it feels like these are just characters. These are real people having a dinner party, they're friends and they go through this experience, but it also then the compromise you have to make by doing that is that it means that the story and the themes and the ideas don't come across as clearly because it's all improvised. It's all shot over five days. Um, I think that there is a level of pretentiousness that comes across with it, where I think that it, to a certain extent, I think the film, because it's touching on so many of these big ideas and themes, not only just in the realm of quantum physics, but these ideas of identity and choice and what it means to make choices and what it means to live with those choices. Uh, but because it's, because it was so fully improvised, I think it also means that it think the film kind of feels like it's smarter. It thinks it's smarter than what it actually is. Cause it's like, just cause you, a <laughs> just, just cause you address a, a, a big theme and a cool theme doesn't mean that you're smart. Yeah. Uh, like doesn't mean that you've made something. <laughs> Savage. Good. No, I, but I like, I, I mean, I, there's I, a certain truth to it. <laughs> there is a certain truth to it. And it's like, it's, it's why it's a lot of the reason why, you know, shows like Rick and Morty, I think get heralded as these really great, smart shows when it's like no they're they're very dumb they touch on big themes and they they touch on big but at least the creators of rick and morty are aware of that you know they yeah i feel like for rick and morty it's the community that pretends it's something more than it is Mm. rather than the creators yeah where in this case it does feel like the creator because i'll give i'll give um sorry i just keep forgetting it's the three it's the three names that i always have trouble with james ward burkett i'll give burkett this for a film like for a film that was five days to shoot, fifty thousand dollars edited together from just that, he clearly put a lot of time and effort into making sure that the story and what it was being based off was good because he spent a year creating yeah. the story and the premise of it. So I'm not saying that he didn't put the work in, and I'm not saying that by you know that by putting the work in, he has some right to be a little bit pretentious with the film. I think the film has the right to, because you've put the work in yeah. to, to make, to have that level of uh, pretension. But I also, I don't think that it was necessarily fully deserved in the sense that from, yeah, a scientific thought experiment point of view, really cool. But it's when you add in these elements of identity and choice, it becomes a little bit, it, it becomes a little bit messy. Um, and maybe that's also because of like, I've only watched this film once, maybe on more viewings, I start to pick up on smaller things, these smaller things that then lead themselves into this idea of choice. Um, one thing I do want to rant about uh, is the ending. 
and it's once again this is similar to what I would say uh, what I say uh, similar thing I brought up with uh, the episode uh, the episode with Emlyn and the Wind Rises. I think that the ending and this is also maybe where the pretentious pretentiousness comes out a little bit more. I think the ending has been overblown to be a lot more complex and a lot more thought provoking and insanely cool and smart than what it actually mm. is. Do you mean sort of in looking up analyses of the film? Yeah. So yeah. this is about looking up analyses. This is not to do with the director. And I think, I think that the director actually, and my interpretation could be wrong, but I think this is the, my interpretation, which is the most obvious interpretation, which I'm surprised very few people have even really touched on, on my findings online or even discussed uh, is the idea. So basically at the end of the film to give people an idea Emily walks out into the dark, finds the one uh, universe where she's, uh, where she is happy with everything. Like the dinner party's going great because they didn't go outside. Nothing broke. There was no power outages. They just had a fun night. Um, and to get everyone out of the house and everyone alone, she breaks uh, one of the characters, Noah's windshield. They all come out. They all go check on her cars. The Emily in this universe it will call Emily one and Emily two. So Emily one is the one you follow throughout the film. Emily two is the one in the new universe. She follows Emily. Emily two goes to her car to check on it, pulls out the ring that uh, the other is a motif, sort of a a recurring uh, image that sort of comes up a lot in the film. Uh, And then Emily one, drugs her with the ketamine because there's ketamine in this totally forgot about the ketamine character there's ketamine (laughs) in this movie i almost (laughs) wanted i almost wanted (laughs) the film when when they first you know it's about half an hour in where things get really wacky and then they're like wait a minute did you drug us? I was really hoping that it'd be like, oh, yeah, oh, they're all yeah, just drugged. Yeah. <laughs> they're all just drugged. Whoa, what is that? We all took care of it together. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so she, Emily one, drugs Emily two, puts her in the boot of the car, takes off her, um, takes off her sweater, uh, cardigan, sorry, and then goes back to the party. And then as they're in the party, they go and all of the party gets a look up at the the comet in the sky from the just the porch of the house. And Emily one sees another Emily crawling into the house, into the bathroom. She goes into the bathroom, kills that Emily, and leaves her in the bathtub, and then faints and collapses. But that is Emily too, right? No, this is. I think. Oh, I, I've always I think, thought it was Emily too, the one in the boot. No. I think it's um, what I think this is. I think there are three Emily's happening in the final scene. I've seen some analysis with four Emily's. I don't like that analysis. I think it's a little bit too long winded. What I think has happened is we have the Emily in the boot. We have the Emily in the tub and we have the Emily passed out on the couch. Yeah. And what I think. So just to clarify for the audience, Emily one is the one on the couch. Emily two is the one in the boot. And now we've got an Emily three in the tub. Three in the tub. Who's dead. Emily three has been killed. Right. So we know from schrodinger's cat that the realities exist until you open the box and then that's when all the realities can converge into one until we have the one universe that we're in um and coherence follows a similar thing they call it quantum decoherence in the yeah in the uh in the film where once the comet has passed this sort of dark area in the middle that acts as the roulette roulette wheel disappears and whoever's yeah the, the bridges between the realities um, disappear, but all the realities themselves still exist, but they're now fully mm. independent of each other. Yeah, so they're fully independent of each other. 
And that's the thing, because what actually happens is the Emily one, you see her take the cardigan, but in the end of the film, she doesn't have the cardigan that Emily two wore on. And that's the cardigan that has her phone in it. And what I think is what the film is trying to say is at the end of the film, the things pass. She is ended up the universe that you end up in is the universe that you're in once the comet passes. And what I think it is saying is we have Emily one who is alive. And we have the universe folding in on itself. So the Emily 2 that's dead no longer exists because you can't have a dead Emily and a alive Emily in the same universe. So they so they cohere and stuff. But the Emily in the boot, that's the Schrodinger's cat. Because we don't know if she's Emily 2 in the boot is alive or dead until they open the boot. So until that happens, the Emily 2 in the boot is both alive without is both alive and dead with and without her cardigan therefore with and without her phone so at the end the emily that calls her boyfriend and is like hey and like the ending sort of ends on this like really like cliffhanger type thing where the boyfriend gets a call from emily while looking at emily and then is like what the fuck is happening and just that look and it cuts um and that's what i think that's what the ending's trying to say is this idea that like you have the alive Emily and the dead Emily. The dead Emily's gone because those two, those are two contradictions that can't exist in the same universe. Mm. So they, they, you go with the alive Emily. That's the universe you're in. Yeah. But the one in the boot is the cat. The Emily in the boot is the cat. And in the way that they have the characters who are just like at the house early, they're like, where the cat? And they're like, no, where the box? And you don't know who's the cat and who's the yeah. box. That it's Emily too in the boot. That's the cat because she's both simultaneously alive and dead. And it isn't until we open that boot that we find out whether there are two Emilys and both are alive or one's dead. And one of them has the sweater and the other one doesn't and has the phone. And I think that's really cool. Like that's a really cool thought process is really cool at the end but everyone seems to be like so confused and things like this is such a smart ending and i'm like no the ending ends on what it begins with which is schrodinger's cat like it's like it's a it's a tough thought experiment but it's a simple explanation for an ending. well that's funny because i for me you know having watched it so many times i've always just gone for this uh, i've sort of occam occam's razored it in terms of the simplest and the simplest scenario (laughs) is probably the most effective in that I literally have always thought that uh, there was just two Emily's and the one, the one that's put in the boot is the one that crawls into the bathroom who Emily one then needs to kill, but then clearly doesn't do the job. Um, so yeah, I've always thought it was, it was just that simple. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, But I guess, it, I guess it does make sense that the three Emily theory, because um, surely someone would have used the bathroom in the time that Emily one was passed out and would have seen yeah. the corpse in the bathroom. Mm. Um, and, and there's also the element as well that like, if we're going with this idea of multiverse theory and everything, there are definitely other Emily's that decided to leave the house yes, and wander yeah, off yeah, into yeah, the yeah. darkness in the same way. There would be other Mike's and other Noah's and other lorries that did made that choice to go off and find the world that they, the universe that they want to exist in. Um, and I think that that's uh, a a fun ending, but I also think that by making that the ending and because it's super vague and unclear, I don't think it's a film that's earned that unclear ending. If that makes sense, <laughs> like is I think be- it's I think is that because of the complexity of the film already that that you're like why why make it more hazy with the ending when it's already pretty hazy? Uh, maybe in a sense that might be part of it. I don't necessarily think that's the whole reason, though. I I think maybe, I think maybe it's because part of the reason I was like. 
you don't deserve this hazy, ambiguous ending is because it isn't until the end that I felt like it became the, it was the most strongly uh, presenting the themes and the message that it wanted to present. Yeah. And like, I, I felt like that was the first moment that it was actually saying something other than aren't alternative realities cool. And would it just be a scary situation to be in? Yeah. Um, wow. Do you really think that's the first time the film addresses that question? I, I've thought, I think it addresses it. I think it addresses it in moments, but I think because of the improvisation, if it was more scripted, it would be a lot tighter and would yeah. actually yeah. get, more of a chance to really explore yeah. these things in a way that makes you think or feel something. But I think that's the first moment where uh, we actually see this happen in a way that I'm actually like, Oh, right. This is what the director's trying to say. And it's like, it isn't until the last 15 minutes of the film that we get that. And that's what I'm a little bit like, you haven't earned this ambiguous ending about choice and identity and what it means to be, to make choices and who we are, because you spent an hour and 15 minutes with actors who kind of vaguely know what they're doing, stumble through a script that's already quite complex. Um, And I think that maybe that's why I was a little bit upset at the ending. Um, Cause I was just like, you haven't earned, you haven't, you haven't earned this. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you watch something that um, something like with a very basic, but ambiguous ending, the ending to shutter Island where you're like, does he know or is he pretending? And he's like, who do you, would you rather grow, live long enough to see the villain or would you live in a make-believe type world? And you're like, oh, what's he saying? That's a film that earns that ambiguous ending because it spends so much time building up the mystery and it's so heavily crafted to be this mystery. Whereas this film was crafted to be that but then the, there was the 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 script wasn't there to support it yeah. because there was no script. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so funny how yeah the the improvisation is simultaneously its biggest weakness, but also such a strength of it. Yeah, ter- it makes because, the film great because the tone. I don't think you could um, you could generate the same tone that it has and the real sort of uncanny uncanniness that is present throughout the film if it was mm. more scripted. Um, yeah because it makes it it really infiltrates the domestic space and because it's because it is um improvised um it feels so real that i i think it's if it was more scripted i think it'd be much harder to engage with the complex science stuff because yeah of um, course because it would feel a bit too cerebral but because it's in that domestic sphere and and the improvisation sort of um generates an intimacy with the audience to allow these complex ideas to be more believable. Um, but then, yeah, at the same time, it, it, it prevents it from, from really, um, from really meaning hammering home, the hammering home, the themes, uh, the more philosophical themes, uh, as opposed to the scientific exploration. Which is a choice as a director you and a storyteller you make. You make those compromises. And I respect that decision. I have nothing against that decision. But I think it definitely adds to that element of when I said before the film's a little bit pretentious in that sense. Where it's like, oh, you wanted to have your cake and eat it too. You wanted a <laughs> film that was improvised and real but also had a message about the nature of choice and identity and what it means and self-reflection and the 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 the, the horror of self-reflection in a weird way yeah and they um, nailed it callum perfectly flawlessly i don't know what your problem is <laughs> you're telling me that a fifty thousand dollar film didn't flawlessly discuss these really deep philosophical elements that maybe probably shouldn't be reading into the film anyway <laughs> 
<laughs> You're right. I'm overthinking. Yep. I'm the one in the wrong. Yeah, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, the Tarantino. What if I was the ranch? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think we might end that segment and yeah. move on to my my little fun little interlude after that big d- philosophical Oof, yeah, discussion. Yeah. We need a little palate cleanser, if you will. A little palate cleanser. Uh, spe- and speaking of the palate, yes. move on to Bite Club. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we talk about the little food and snacks we ate while watching the movie. So, Baron, what did you eat? Well, I, um, I had dinner while eating mine. Um, I, it was a, a very Classic. mild little homemade curry. Um, so, yeah, it was it was quite nice. Um uh, I'm glad that it was mild because I feel like the film probably had enough spice of its own. To be um, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say, I think if I had, um, uh, if I'd gone into it on an empty stomach, um, uh, things might've been different. Maybe I'd have, uh, maybe I'd have enjoyed the film more. Who knows? Who knows? Um, uh, what, what, what's been what's been the most uh, in- spicy, uh, if you will, uh, bite club uh, entry your guests have had? Uh, I think my favorite was probably Emlyn's, just because his the dinner that he I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like a steak and some like it was just a mixture of different like cuisines. It was like a steak with um with like, I think it was like some like Asian green. So it was just like a weird mix all on naan bread. So it was like this weird mix of like, like Indian and Western and Asian cuisine and like this big crossover, which I felt really encapsulated what the film is. <laughs> yeah, I was about big, to say, yeah. the Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein's monster, you know, meal to, to meet the, the film equivalent. Mm. Uh, as for me, this was the first time I actually had a full proper meal. Oh while watching the movies. Normally I have like little snacks yeah. of some sort, uh, but this was the first time I had a meal. So I actually, I had tacos, uh, I, but I had a dinner with my family. So I watched this with my parents. So we oh. were actually having a family dinner while watching a movie about a dinner. Um, <laughs> and that I thought, I thought that was quite interesting because by the time we finished dinner was about the point that they realized there were doppelgangers. Uh, but it wasn't, they hadn't realized the multiverse theory yet. They just were like, there are people who look like us. Um, and they have red glow sticks instead of blue. Um, and I thought that was like really, cause I was very full and I could lie down and it was, that was good. Cause that was the point where I was like, I need to lie down and have, cause I'm like, I can't sit and watch this. I need to be like fully invested. So it meant that by the time I finished dinner, I had a nice full belly and I was like, right, I can focus entirely on this movie. So I think it worked well in the fact that the opening part where for all intents and purposes, you don't have to focus too much. Like you, like you pick up on all the character development and stuff, but um, but there's not too much of it. It's not too heavy handed, and it's a lot more jokey and quippy. There are some stuff. very nice little details in that, though. Which, no, uh, of course, when so, you, yes. When you watch it a second time, I think you'll you'll appreciate. You know, with full knowledge, looking back, there's all sorts mm. of interesting stuff in there. Like, the, oh, um, absolutely. The, the, like the fact that Amir and Laurie coming in there from a different universe at the beginning because they come late, yeah. so they go through the di- the darkness and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that and, was great. Uh, and the uh, you know the discussion of the comet in the past when the um the you know they're like yeah the in Finland or whatever um you know about the woman saying that's not my husband and they're like why i killed him, I killed yesterday. him yesterday yeah, yeah yeah really cool stuff that was great and really there's so cool many stuff. more little things like that in that in the opening sequence yeah i i definitely want to rewatch it again having now watched it and knowing what's happening to like pick up on those little clues um which is exciting that's i think one part about the film that's a little bit exciting is that you the couple and rewatches you pick up on yeah. small little and clues you'll have to let me know if your if your um rants um change at all for better or for worse upon rewatching. 
yeah, I'll definitely I'll let let you know, and I'll um we'll have to either make a short little episode, little bonus episode <laughs> of like uh, Callum's revisions, yeah. or uh, or yeah, or I'll I uh, will do that. Um, excellent. So that's that's Bite Club, our short little palate cleansing interlude, and now we move on to my favorite segment, the title twister. <laughs> There's a lot so to work now with here, here, this is the 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 um the part of where we talk about your movie in this case um coherence and we talk about how the addition of vampires in the movie would change the film and at what point we think would be best to work it in and this actually i i would argue uh last week was the easiest film to incorporate or last fortnight was the easiest film to incorporate vampires in because um persona is already a bit of a vampire movie as well (laughs) i think this week Interesting. Two films about identity, two films, totally different angles. I think this is one of the hardest films to incorporate vampires Ooh. in. And it's purely because of how strictly they build the science. I think the world building in this film is a little bit shonky, but they stick very clear to the science and they make it very clear from the science that um, the, on the night that it happens, the only changes that can be made are the changes made through the choices of the characters. So it's not like there's a universe where if a character, um, like there's not that you don't you can't find an alternate universe where one of the characters is a different ethnicity than the one they are no, they no. currently are in, or there's not like one where like one um like mike is straight in this universe and they find like a mike that's homosexual or something or or that there's another guest you know like it's all very self-contained yeah it's all very self-contained and because of that i think it like in if you wanted to keep the science as strong and as realistic and as grounded in the film it'd be very hard to add vampires in saying that that's not what this podcast is no. about. And we're adding fucking vampires to this movie. Hell, so where do you are. think the best chance would be to uh, best well, point? Well, I think, um, you know, uh, the film itself takes place from dusk till dawn. So I think, you know, you know, uh, if, um, <laughs> I think the vampires need to come in from the very start. Um, oh, okay. Um, you know, whether it's maybe, um, oh, I'm just trying to think, you know, which character, you know, should we have all of them be vampires? One or two characters vampires? Um, mm, I think it would be, if you wanted to make, if you wanted to go the obvious route of saying the alternate, one alternate dimensions vampires, I think the scene with Emily and her boyfriend that's from a different universe in the dark, yes. that would be a great scene where he's just like, he got <laughs> fangs and like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> that would that would really, incre- it, it would be very strange choice. But it would be, uh, and then it would make, be you, it'd make you, it'd make you reevaluate everything you've seen up until that yeah. point. <laughs> You're just like, all this hard science <laughs> and all this physics, and then it's just like, we're the vampire universe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah actually no that would be great if it's if it's only one specific timeline mm. that they're all vampires, vampires. um yeah th- that would be, be really great. funny and, and what if that's the one that she ends up in you know that would um, be what if she's like the vampire universe is the best so well, i gotta suck a bit of blood but you know like yeah. you know they're all happy oh, yeah they're all happy you know <laughs> <laughs> You know, life is all about compromise, Calum, and that—that—that's yeah. <laughs> the message that uh, that the coherence is really trying to get across. I don't know where you got this stuff about choice and identity and whatnot. It's about—it's about compromise. It's about compromise and vampires. And vampires. Um, I also think the film would be funny if they did the film exactly the same way they did it. It's just that they were vampires. So rather than having a dinner party, they're just like, they have the dinner and they bring out like a tied up human being that they're all going to be sucking blood from. Yeah, Yeah, literally nothing else in the film changes. Yeah, it's all exactly the same. They just have pointy teeth. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, I also think maybe uh, the Laurie character. Mm. Um, uh, maybe the maybe the scene where her and I can't remember um, what the boyfriend's yeah, name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, but where she of, is basically pulling a move on him. Yeah, yeah, she's pulling a move on him, but it's the alternate dimension one. Yeah, um, and then and then she ah, uh, bites into his neck. Yeah, that would be fun. That'd be fun. That'd be a fun way. That would be fun. This film just isn't built for. This is one of those films where I'm just like, it's just, it's just not. I just don't think it's built for the vampire subtext. You know, like it's not built for that vampire be, beast. Yeah, beeline, well, I mean, you know, you know James Ward Burkett mentioned in vint- interviews he did want to include um, uh, vampires mm. in the film. It was, it was. Yeah, you know, they had it in the uh, in the development um, in the treatment yeah. he made for like six months. I think he said. Um, but, yeah. uh, but you know, once they <laughs> once they really did the research in the quantum mechanics, um, they they realized they they just don't know how they can keep the vampires in. The yeah. Film. So yeah, um, that was the that was the sixth day of filming. Yeah, all the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then all the vampires <laughs> But then they run. Then the fifty grand ran out. So you know they they yeah. couldn't get the footage um, with the vampires. Ah, damn, yeah, right. yeah, 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 that's why it's just a low budget film. If only they had they put more of a budget into oh, it, we could have the vampire movie we wanted. I see why you were complaining about the low budget earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is your agenda, yeah. right? This is my agenda. I'm 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 pro vampire for all for films. All <laughs> you know what? You said that as a joke, but based on this podcast, you know, I'm not so sure it is. <laughs> well, we'll never know. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that there are definitely some moments where it would um, be fun and cool, but I think it would definitely it would undermine most of what the film is trying to <laughs> yeah. do um like the most more than any film i think we've had on the yeah. podcast so even far, barbie in, in the 12 dancing princesses was that wasn't that one of the films? i don't i think that could work because you've got the idea like in even in that one um there's like the the evil aunt who's kind of like very pale and tall and wears a black dress and she's already fairly vampiric and she's poisoning the king so there's like i think we talked about maybe she's turning him into a vampire mm. which you can still make a lot of what's happening work. Um, well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty flattered that that my my film has uh, been the most difficult to uh, to incorporate. It's because it's with. it's because they spent a year on the side. Yeah, it's that's, just, true. We, that's true. No, 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 Callum. We established they spent six months on the vampires mm. and then six months on Sorry, the science. Sorry, so. on the science. Yes, of course. The, the first six months were a write-off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no wonder they couldn't uh, develop it as well. <laughs> you know. No, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to see the sequel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Coherence two, vampire edition. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, amazing. Is, uh, well, is it allowed in Title Twister for us to do the reverse and see where we can incorporate alternate realities into From Dust Till Dawn? Mm, Will you uh, make an I mean, exception? Uh, I'm happy to make an exception for this film because it already, I think, just because it already works, it feels like there's that they go into an alternate, alternate reality, reality already. So <laughs> if I will. I'll allow it. I'll allow yeah, it as yeah. as the podcast as the host of the podcast. Okay. Well, uh, anyone. In- I, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think when they enter the bar, that's when the, the comet passes overhead and and weird stuff yeah. happens. And uh, well, there's already that Aztec element at the end. Where yeah. Which like, I oh, it's also was the bars and Aztec so temple. Dumb. <laughs> that was so dumb. I had totally forgotten about that, and that definitely deserved to be in my rant. <laughs> um, but it also after having watched it because i listened to uh, daniel lemons um the first half of that episode and um it made uh it made daniel's um 
Daniel's summary even more hilarious because he was mm. he talked about an ancient <laughs> culture that was just trying to live its life, <laughs> and then these two murderers come in and uh, ruin it all. Just, uh yeah, no, it's um, yeah. I think I think that's I. I wouldn't be surprised if the ending isn't they're in a, a temple, but it's actually like a comet going overhead, and they're in the dark space. Uh, and that's there, like in this, all of these different realities converging into one, cohering, uh, and and decohering. And one of them, they just end up in the vampire universe. You know, you know that would that that works. That's a better film than Coherence Vampires. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a better film than <laughs> than than just Coherence. You know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well. Speaking of the better film. We're going to get to the end across the border mm. and we have to keep in mind everything we've learned. We have to decide which is better, but we have to argue for the films we watch. So Berend, you will be arguing four from dusk till dawn. Um, and I'd love to hear some of your, your arguments well, for why this is better than coherence. Uh, you know, I think that our discussion for over the last hour or so has, has, you know, uh, really highlighted, um, the weaknesses of coherence. Um, and, uh, you know, the biggest one was, I'd say the, uh, the improvisation and the uh, the budget, uh, two things of which, uh, you know, uh, from dusk till dawn, polar opposite, very written script, um, well written, who knows, but written, uh, and that's something that coherence doesn't have, um, which you know we discussed uh, is is one of its biggest downfall. Uh, budget as well, um, you know, fifty thousand dollars versus nineteen million, and uh, you know that's a scale of. More than I don't know what <laughs> how much fifty thousand is uh, uh, in ninety million. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, yeah. one could argue that the quality uh, is reflected reflecting that difference. Um, so um, uh, yeah, I think even just George Clooney's uh, performance um, is enough to is enough to say that uh, it's better film better film than Coherence. Yeah, very 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 good very good argument. That's a strong strong argument that you make uh i definitely have to say that coherence is a very good film i would definitely want to rewatch it again i as much as i've talked a lot about the philosophy and stuff i'm also a big old nerd and i love me <laughs> i love primer i love this i love me some cerebral hard sci-fi that really gets into like these these sci-fi premises and poses these questions that really have no answers and it just puts human characters in these situations and we just have to watch them work out what to do in the same way that any of us would you know i think that um i mean i personally if i was in that situation i'd go find the alternate version of me and just chill uh and hang out be like yo let's go play some board games and talk about yeah, life and, yeah you know let's go watch the film coherence Whoa. together and rant about it <laughs> so and, many uh, <laughs> um yeah, like it's a great, as I said, it's a great film. I've ranted a lot about it, but I think that those, all of the things that I said that make it are its weaknesses are also what makes the film really good. The improv element, it's a risk. It's a big risk. And I love movies that take risks like that. That's why From Dust Till Dawn is the center of this podcast. And it's why this movie I think is great. It took a risk to make a movie that uh, structurally sound on the way they did five days, no script, just constant filming, I think is like mad respect for everyone involved. Big, big ups, big shout out to everyone involved in the making of the film. Um, 
but yeah, as you said, Baron, the the fact that they spent they didn't have the budget to put in the intended vampires that they wanted yeah. to put in the film yeah. just makes me think that From Dust Till Dawn is the alternate reality where they had the budget <laughs> and they had the actors to make the film coherence was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. I think I think From Dust Till Dawn not only is the better movie, I think it's the film that coherence was always meant to be. I think it is coherence but with a script and with a budget and now that you mention it you know i think we can probably read into you know that interview that burkett had saying they spent those first six months developing the vampires as as the cornerstone of the of the um film i think you know it wouldn't be too much of a jump to say maybe he watched from dust till dawn and realized oh mm. it's been done before done it's before. been done before. and you know had to change, to change and all was- of it all of it. And that's where he lost the budget because he had he probably had $19 million. And then when they found out he, it's been done before, they he lost a lot of the budget, had to make it in his home. You know, it's it's actually it's in a weird way, it's kind of it's kind of sad. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like we could have it's tragedy. It's a true, it's a true Greek tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> uh um, so yeah, so from Dusseldorn has to yeah, win this week, yeah, I think. Yeah. It, it's uh, uh, it's been a it's been tough. Uh, it's been it's tough been to tough. admit. But uh, but I think the answer is is crystal clear, crystal clear. It's crystal clear, crystal clear. Um, thank you, Berend, for coming on to thank the you podcast. Very much for having me. Uh, do you have anything to plug in terms of like socials or anything oh, you want to? The only thing I plug is this podcast. Give it a listen. Hey. Uh, get involved with Must. Uh, Must is it was bloody my my second home uh, at Monash. Uh, they do awesome stuff. Uh, no matter what your experience level. Uh, there's always something for you to get involved with. The community is fantastic, very welcoming. Uh, you'll learn so much, uh, not just in terms of skills, but about yourself. And uh, yeah, um, join Mars to get involved. Yes, excellent. Join Mars to get involved. That is something I can definitely stand by. Um, and yeah, I, I usually plug things at the beginning of the podcast in my own little speaking segment, but I have not, I don't think I have anything to plug this week either. So Baron, thank you for coming on. Thank you for showing me such an excellent movie. Like, as I said, despite all the rants, it's a film that will keep me thinking for a long time and I'm definitely going to rewatch it. Um, and for all our listeners until next time. Okay. Ramblers, let's get rambling. (laughs) (laughs) And and remember, in every other universe, <laughs> I fucked. <laughs>